0: Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Jessica Lovering from the Breakthrough Institute, The Breakthrough Institute is a global research center that identifies and promotes technological solutions to environmental and human development challenges in areas like energy, food and agriculture, and conservation. As director of energy, Jessica leads the energy program and spends much of her time focusing on nuclear specifically. In this episode, we cover a number of topics, including Jessica's history and what led her down the path to focusing on climate change. We also talk about what led her to working on nuclear specifically, what she feels are some of the biggest things that are holding nuclear back domestically, what led her to that conclusion, and what we can do about it. We also talked about some examples of other countries that are further along in this regard and what we might be able to learn from those countries. We talked about the role of advanced nuclear, the role of the federal government versus states, the pros and cons of public utilities and deregulation the eco-modernist movement, and different flavors, such as hard eco-modernists or pragmatists. We also talked about some of the differences in the different generations of people that are working on environmental problems. Finally, we talked about the most impactful things that could happen to achieve rapid decarbonization and what you and I can do to help. I thought this was a great episode. We covered a lot of ground. And, you know, the Breakthrough Institute, they have a reputation that's kind of edgy, maybe ruffling some feathers, but I found Jessica to be super nice, super thoughtful, and really forthcoming with information. Jessica Lovering, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I mean, maybe for the benefit of our listeners and for me, what is the Breakthrough Institute? What do you guys do?
1: So Breakthrough is an environmental think tank. We're in Oakland, California. Keeps us a little out of the day-to-day DC fray of legislation and politics, but what we tend to Focus on is original research and analysis, looking at ways that technology can alleviate environmental problems, whether it's in climate, traditional air pollution, and now moving more into food and farming. And so, on the energy side, what that looks like is our motto has really been make clean energy cheap. So, rather than look for ways to pass carbon tax or make fossil fuels more expensive, look for policies that can stimulate innovation and help bring the cost down of clean energy technologies so that it's the obvious choice for utilities and for consumers. And I've specifically focused on nuclear power since I started at Breakthrough in 2012.
0: Got it. And I heard on my friend Brett's podcast, Titans of Nuclear, your episode that you started down an an astrophysics path before switching gears into climate, energy, nuclear.
1: Yeah, I was really passionate about space and particularly planets, but I, in my day-to-day life, was really concerned about the environment. And I spent a summer living in Alaska and just got more and more concerned about climate change, seeing the effects sort of day-to-day and very real up there. And so wanted to get more involved. Astrophysics felt a little too distant and not as important in the short term here on planet Earth. So I switched into environmental policy when I was in grad school and ended up getting a degree in energy policy. And that's sort of how I was led to the Breakthrough Institute.
0: Got it. In the areas that you mentioned with the some of the recent stuff in agriculture, and of course, the energy stuff that Breakthrough has done for a long time, how do you guys prioritize which areas to focus on it? And then within those, how do you prioritize what you actually do to make an impact in those areas. Yeah.
1: Breakthrough is quite small for an organization and for the full-time staff that we have. So we're trying to find ways where we can make the most impact. So typically how we prioritize is we look at where are the issues or the spaces that aren't getting enough attention and could actually have a big impact if we started rallying support around these things. So that's in particular how I got started is around 2011, around the time of the Fukushima accident we realized that there wasn't really enough conversation around nuclear power, particularly for groups and advocates that were saying we have to do everything possible to get to zero carbon. But everyone was just sort of ignoring our largest source of zero carbon electricity in the US. So we kind of started exploring, well, what are the challenges? Why isn't there more nuclear? What's stopping it? And a similar thing when we started getting into sort of non power sector, looking at, well power sector is only 25% of emissions. Like, what about all these other areas? What about agriculture? What about forestry? What about industry? How are we actually going to move the needle in those areas? And so that's how we got into it. But definitely, we kind of want to find a unique niche in what we can do research on or analysis on and find kind of the unique breakthrough angle.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And so- In terms of that research and analysis, so you find an area that you feel like is underserved and can have a a big impact, does the actual work you do from a research and analysis standpoint tend to be pretty systematic and boilerplate in terms of its scope, in terms of the process, or does it vary a lot in terms of the specific result that you're trying to achieve?
1: I would say it varies a lot and it's pretty fluid. So for a lot of these projects, when we start out, We're just sort of exploring, like, we want to figure out what's going on with advanced nuclear, or where could costs come down? Or we started a project a few years ago that we're just working on submitting to a journal now on land use intensity of energy. And a lot of the times our projects get started by, well, a lot of people are saying this, but is that really true? And so, for example, with the land use paper, we hear a lot that nuclear power is really dense and that renewables take up a lot of space out in the landscape. And so we really wanted to do a better job understanding how different are they? Are there good places and bad places? Are there best practices so that renewables take up less space? What's really the impact when we're thinking about fully decarbonizing the global energy system? What does that look like in terms of land? Which is something that no one was really talking about, particularly in these big energy scenarios and systems modeling. How much land I would really use. So that's kind of how we get started. And then once we know what the analysis is, it's a little more, we set out a structure and formula for how we're going to run the numbers and collect data and things like that, which looks more like traditional kind of academia or research institute.
0: And from a prioritization standpoint, I guess that prioritization could occur at the individual researcher standpoint, could occur at kind of a central leadership standpoint, or could take a lot of input from funders. So how does it work at Breakthrough?
1: Yeah, so each of our research programs. I have a director, so I'm director of the energy program and I set the priorities and what we want to work on within energy. And it's pretty separate between the different programs, but we do talk with a lot of people about what our priorities should be. Mainly we follow kind of what the discourse is on social media, on the big newspaper and magazine sites talking about energy. So kind of following what's being talked about and then we also have this great network of senior fellows, which are mostly academics that are affiliated with Breakthrough. And so we reach out to them about when we have ideas, is this worth pursuing? What's their perspective? And we're really lucky that our funders are very knowledgeable and engaged with our work in a way that we can get feedback from them on our potential ideas that's really valuable but they're also very supportive of our ideas that we bring to them of work we want to pursue. So, it's a good ecosystem for kind of thinking more creatively around how to solve problems in a way that I think other organizations are a little more constrained in what they're able to pursue.
0: Uh-huh. And if you can't say just say you can't say, but is it public in terms of either who the Funders are, or just like the demographic makeup, if they're individuals or foundations
1: or. Our funding is all public. We have a list on our website if people are very interested. Go to the. Now I'm embarrassed. I don't know that. Thebreakthrough.org. <laughs> yeah, we list all our funders and it's mostly, it's all philanthropic. We don't accept any funding from industry and it's mostly family foundations. So people who care about the environment, care about human development, and have some money to share. Great.
0: And so what was it about nuclear? So when you were I so I heard on Brett's podcast that you started down the astrophysics path and you spent some time in Alaska, you had this awakening about the environment and the precious resources and started turning more in this direction. So as
1: you started down that path, what is it that led you to nuclear? So I will say at this time in my life, I had never really been anti nuclear. I just hadn't thought about it much. I think like a lot of people from my generation even who focus on energy. But where I was living, I was in Colorado. I was growing my own food. I was drinking raw milk. I was really into renewables. You see them everywhere. Lots of people have solar on their roof. And when I started doing this energy policy degree, I was just thinking about wind and solar and how to deploy more. And that just sort of fit with my general worldview of kind of small scale personal solutions. But it was actually a class uh, taught by Roger Puckey Jr., who was a senior fellow at Breakthrough, where we just did these very simple decarbonization models in Excel of how we each got a country and we tried to figure out how to get them to zero carbon. And just seeing how difficult it was, even to just decarbonize the power sector, let alone the entire energy sector for a single country, and looking at it in terms of millions of wind turbines or square miles of solar panels. And then it's just like six nuclear plants or something like that. And it was kind of crazy. Even the number for a lot of these countries, even the number of nuclear plants is pretty large, but it's it seems much more doable if you include nuclear. And it definitely seems like you shouldn't take it off the table. So obviously, we're not going to go nuclear, but including it in the mix, when build as much wind as you can, build as much solar as you can, and then build as much nuclear as you can, we might get there. So that was really a revelation for me, was just running the numbers for these different countries, and then learning a little bit more about how kind of energy models are done through IPCC and through these big sort of modeling groups, how many sort of, how much fudging goes on and kind of magic tricks that get you someplace that looks doable when, if you're being more realistic, it's a lot harder than they make it look to decarbonize. So that's how I got interested in nuclear. And then I spent the rest of my time in grad school, kind of trying to figure out learning about nuclear and trying to figure out what the major obstacles were and why it was really ignored in a lot of the climate and environmental communities.
0: I've been spending some time in nuclear, and I'm not even a smidge as deep as you, but I've been drawn to it for similar reasons where I'm hearing again and again and again that it's like the our path is so overwhelmingly hard, way harder than a lot of people understand, and that even with nuclear, it's still super hard, but at least it's meaningfully easier. But then there's all these things that I'm finding that I need to get my brain around about safety and waste and security, proliferation risk, cost, Fukushima and Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. And and then there's consumer perception of the not in my backyard stuff. And then does consumer perception even matter? And it's like there's all this stuff. And I heard you say on Brett's podcast, not to keep coming back to that, but it's fresh because I I just listened to it yesterday, that ultimately there's all these different things you hear, but that the real thing is cost. But for those of us that hear that conclusion, but didn't go through the same journey as you to get there, can you explain, given that there's all that vast landscape of stuff that I just mentioned, what led you to that conclusion that it's all about cost?
1: So I would say cost is the biggest obstacle. It's not all about cost. There are other big reasons that people don't like nuclear. From my understanding of the history, and especially the recent time with nuclear, what's actually stopped nuclear from getting built has been cost. And so now that may be different in the future when we move towards more of a decentralized power system where there's much more community involvement in projects. But why it comes down to cost, looking at who's done big nuclear build-outs in the past, they weren't, at all motivated around climate change. I mean, there are some certain places where countries or locales were concerned about local air pollution, so particulates from coal plants. But generally, the motivation for most countries that did big nuclear scale-ups was just cheap, reliable electricity. Particularly once you get the plant built, the operating costs are so small. They're the second lowest in the US after hydro for existing nuclear power plants, and for countries that were rapidly industrializing after World War II, having that huge source of cheap, reliable electricity, which is so important in powering economic growth, human development, urbanization. And so from our perspective, it's like, well, they were building it because it was cheap. And now we're saying we can't build it because it's too expensive. So What's going on there? And there's a complicated story there of public utilities and uh, natural monopolies and deregulation of the power sector. But the gist is that now, especially in the U.S., where most of our states have deregulated power markets, it's just really challenging to build anything, particularly something that has a high upfront cost, even if the cost for electricity is going to be quite low over the long term getting the financing and the support for such a big project up front is really challenging. So thinking about, we do have two nuclear reactors under construction in the U.S. today at the Vogel site in Georgia, and that is a public utility that's doing that project. And that's how they're able to do it. And so there's been news reports about cost overruns there. They're not as big as some of the cost overruns we had in the 70s and 80s in the U.S., but They've had cost overruns, but even with those high costs of the project, the actual cost of electricity in the long run is going to be really affordable for them. And so that's why they're doing it. And we don't have utilities like that with that long-term vision in a lot of the U.S. and particularly in a lot of Europe. And so we could make a case that, well, we should just go back to public utilities. We should re-regulate, which was on the ballot in California. 10 years or so ago. And I like public utilities. It would be great if we could do that. But I don't think it's going to happen. So the question is not France built all this nuclear in the 70s. Let's just do what France did. Well, they had state-owned utility, state-owned nuclear developer. We're not going to be able to replicate that as great as it was for the climate and for the energy system. So what I've been looking at is how can you actually design nuclear and commercialized nuclear that matches what the power market looks like today, which is much more decentralized, deregulated, and focused much more on variable costs and sort of community scale power generation. And traditionally, that is nuclear is not a good fit for that market at all. But we're seeing with a lot of these startups and advanced nuclear designs, thinking more about how their product meets market needs, rather than we have this amazing nuclear technology, it's perfect, it's so safe, buy it. They're actually thinking more like traditional tech developers and saying, what's the market look like? How do I make a product that fits that market need? And that's what's really different about the developers working on new nuclear today.
0: So what I think I'm hearing from you is that cost has historically been a problem, and it's not... And it's complicated because there's incentives and these big projects that are done on a one-off basis and the fact that we don't have public-owned utilities, et cetera, but that you're working on some ways to address that cost with more modular, more distributed, more community involvement, et cetera, you know, advanced reactors. I guess one question I have is when you were entering the space, did you have this consumer hysteria and renewables hysteria about... Waste and safety and security to that all come at you like, what are you doing? You can't do that for these reasons. And how did you get comfortable there before you even got to the cost challenge?
1: You know, I can't really remember a time when I was afraid of waste or radiation in particular. I definitely was cautious about more of the sort of military industrial complex. So, more concerned about radiation accidents and contamination from the nuclear weapons industry but i hadn't really thought too much about nuclear waste and sort of dangers from the commercial side and i think a big part of that is probably my physics background and um, i know that there's radiation coming at us from all directions 24/7 and so felt a little bit more comfortable if someone says well there's radiation i'm like what kind how strong, what blocks it. And so I think that for me personally, that helped, but I definitely understand and try to sympathize with people's fears around radiation because it's invisible. The government was sort of letting us be dusted with it for a long time during the atomic weapons testing. And that's scary. So in terms of waste and safety, I think for me, the bigger issue, and I think this is true for a lot of people in my generation, is we've focused a lot on the risks of catastrophic climate change, destruction of ecosystems, warming oceans. That these kind of really rare risks from a nuclear accident don't seem as severe when we're sort of pumping million tons of coal pollution into the atmosphere every day. These like tiny chances of nuclear accidents don't seem as important when it could be a solution to climate change. So that's kind of how I viewed things. I definitely have gotten I think better at talking with people about their fears and concerns around nuclear waste and nuclear safety. But it's definitely something you don't want to ignore or dismiss because people's fears are really important and it's really critical to understand them when you're trying to make policy to expand deployment of a new technology. I think
0: that talks about the safety concern. You also hear about waste and where are we going to put it and Yucca Mountain and what a disaster and we're just sitting in casks and and what are we going to do? And so, by the way, I'm still gathering information, but I'm finding more and more that I'm in the camp, I think, right now that We need nuclear and that the benefits outweigh the risk given the existential threat that we find ourselves in. But that before I can get to that position confidently and really put some weight behind it, I need to like pressure test it. And so that's kind of how I'm viewing conversations like this is all the things that all the skeptics tell me and all the things that I'd be crazy because of these reasons. Let me bring those up so that I can do my homework and have more conviction around my viewpoints.
1: I think that's really important. And something for me, understanding more of the legacy of the military side of nuclear has been important where, you know, it can be easy, particularly for nuclear power advocates to be like, oh, they're totally separate. Don't even mention nuclear weapons or sort of Hanford or these military sites. That was weapons. Forget about it. Because for a lot of people, it's hard to disentangle. They hear nuclear and they think of a lot of things. And so being sort of willing to grapple with that when you talk with people can really help move the conversation forward.
0: And I guess another thing I've been wrestling with is that there's kind of the rational arguments of, well, look at the carbon and look at the risk. And so the risk of this versus the risk of that. And that, I would call that just like a rational conversation based on trade-offs and things like that. But there's another perspective, which is, will we ever have the political will for nuclear to be deployed at scale, at least in this country, And whether it's rational or not, if the public and the legislators, et cetera, have certain viewpoints, then at some point we need to swim with the tide versus trying to go upstream all the time. So how do you think about those trade-offs?
1: Well, I think that's one space where nuclear does have an advantage in that in the U.S. at least, it has pretty bipartisan support. And we've seen a number of bills go through in recent years with really large shares of votes from both parties, thinking of the NECA and NEMA bills. And I think that's given us some optimism. I mean, they're small steps, but they're steps in the right direction. And they have a lot of big name senators on them. So I've seen that as a really good sign, but obviously we need a lot more. And so in terms of will we have the political will, You don't need that much from a president. A lot of this is happening now at the private level. So it would be very helpful to have strong leadership around climate in general and supporting innovative new ideas. And we've seen a lot of that in terms of increasing support for DOE and for the nuclear energy R&D. But you don't need sort of a massive, I would say, like World War II mobilization effort You need some supportive policies at the state level, sort of moving towards clean energy mandates instead of renewable portfolio standards, which a lot of states have. These sort of states can make their own choices and their own policies, and I think that's where we're seeing more of the action. There is definitely some work that needs to be done to kind of streamline the licensing process, and it would be great to have some more financial support, kind of like the production tax credit that renewables benefit from. And I think that's doable, and I don't think you need sort of a huge effort. It's not a huge lift from a new administration. So yeah, I don't see it so much as a trade-off. I think we've taken some steps in the right direction and we could use a lot more policy, but we're sort of building up momentum towards that. And how much
0: work, if any, is breakthrough doing? To me, it seems like two different skill sets. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's kind of the math and which things should be deployed at scale, et cetera, to, to make the math work. And then there's a separate one, which is like, how do we get the right policies in place and how do we influence people on the on both sides of the aisle, et cetera. I mean, are you guys involved in any of that stuff or is it strictly on the...
1: Yeah. So we definitely are focused on policy and we look at trying to find policies that can have broad support rather than policies that sort of alienate one group or the other. So with nuclear, one of the areas that we found is pretty bipartisan support is investing in innovation and moving beyond just basic R&D and getting support for demonstrations and prototypes and actual deployment. And that's something where we see that we've looked at lots of different policies that could help clean energy and nuclear specifically. And that seems like a place where there is less fighting and more feasible policy. And the other one, which I just mentioned, was clean energy standards. We have a report that we put out just last year on trying to get states to shift or add on to their existing renewable portfolio standards, which 31 states have, change them to clean energy standards and kind of raise the bar on how much clean energy they deploy. And we've actually seen a few states are considering this. Some have already put into place. So that's something that we look for these opportunities in terms of policies that can actually make progress and we've seen some success there at the state level.
0: And is it you guys that are actually then spending time with the legislators or do you have partner advocacy firms that you work with closely?
1: No, we sometimes will talk with people in these states, but it's more, we're kind of setting up the framework for policies of what they should look like and kind of working with people that have more experience in those states in terms of actually moving things forward.
0: Uh huh. But it sounds like you feel, saying it as a statement, but it's really a question, is that you feel optimistic about nuclear's path and that in the near term, it's going to be more at the state level than at the federal, but that there's some good momentum on the policy front and on the technology front that should unlock a new wave of deployment?
1: Yeah, I think there is still a lot of important support coming from the federal level through the national labs, through DOE. There's a interesting request for information that DOD put out around having micro-reactors powering DOD installations. So there's little things like that that are really important from the federal level, but in terms of incentives and sort of actual getting things built, I think in some ways is more action at the state level, just around clean energy in general. But obviously the big support for wind and solar deployment has come from the federal production tax credit. And so having something like that for advanced nuclear could be really helpful or an investment tax credit. So I wouldn't say we don't need it, but right now, more of the support is coming from state level, but we need a lot more of everything.
0: And if you could wave a magic wand and make one or a small handful of things happen that would fundamentally accelerate that trajectory that aren't happening today, what are those things?
1: I think the big one would be Passing the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, which was introduced in the Senate, it has a whole suite of exciting things that really push to actually get advanced nuclear reactors built and on pretty short timescales. So uh, aiming to have a few demonstrations of different designs before 2030, to have the federal government sign PPAs with the small Modular Reactors and also building out the infrastructure for R&D, things like test reactors, and also making some higher enriched uranium available to some of these companies that need new fuels. So there's just a a bunch of stuff in there that could really kind of stimulate the industry across the board and really get some shovels in the ground. So that would be my one wish in the short term.
0: And how's it looking?
1: It's kind of stagnant right now. I mean, Congress has a lot on their plate. (laughs) obviously. But I do think the bill, you know, was introduced, has good bipartisan support, it just needs to be made a priority. So yeah, maybe next administration, we'll see.
0: Switching gears for a minute. I mean, one thing I'm curious about is just, it seems like when the Breakthrough Institute entered the industry, that the approach was to kind of shake things up and to maybe almost be combative or challenge some of the ways that things had always been done in environmentalism. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think particularly where that comes from is that when Breakthrough was founded in 2007, there was a lot of stagnation around environmental thought and the Bush administration kind of a feeling that things were going in the wrong direction, couldn't really get a lot of good stuff going. And so how do you break through that stagnation and break through those obstacles? And so where we've sort of have really v- valuable contributions is kind of in disruptive thinking of finding, well, what the environmental groups have been proposing for the last 30 years, still not feasible in Congress. And actually, if it did go through, it wouldn't really make a difference because of, of these reasons. So let's find a policy that is more... Doable to actually get past, but then would actually make a big difference. And so, looking at kind of taking a new look at historical experiences with policy and with environmental trends, and saying, like, well, what actually was going on here, and kind of shifting the narrative to what actually works. And so, I think we've continued to do that with energy. I think a lot of our ideas around energy have become more mainstream, which is great. But now, looking into our other spaces like agriculture, the big focus from an environmental perspective has been on small scale, organic, low input farming. And what we're finding and what we're talking about is actually a lot of these sort of large scale efforts can be a lot better for the environment in different ways. And so finding where technology is really helpful from an environmental perspective in in food and farming It's kind of a new way that we're being disruptive.
0: And that kind of shake things up and challenge the conventional wisdom type of approach. Is that kind of a similar mindset now? Or or how has that evolved in the many years that you guys have been now doing the work that you do?
1: I think it's definitely core to Breakthrough's DNA. I think as we kind of mature on issues, and as our frameworks and narratives kind of become more mainstream, it turns more into building partnerships and actually getting things implemented and getting our ideas kind of into the right places, whether it's into the hands of senators or it's into academic departments curriculum, that's sort of the second stage where we're trying to get our ideas out there. After they've been sort of the initial disruption. But it definitely is still, we're always looking for a way to shift the narrative and disrupt people's thinking and get people talking about issues that they weren't really considering before.
0: Thanks. Yeah, that's helpful. I I don't have any of the context on history, but I kind of got the sense just as I've been making the rounds that maybe you guys have ruffled a little feathers over time, but it's been confusing for me because, I mean, I only know a handful of you,
1: but I went to your event and everyone I've talked to has been really super nice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we definitely built out a network of what we call friends and family that are great to work with and they're spread out across academia and government and industry. And so I think there's a lot of people that where our framework, particularly eco some which we haven't touched on, really resonates with people, particularly people that maybe cared about the environment, but were sort of didn't really feel like they fit in with traditional environmentalism with a capital E. And so finding a outlet and a community where you can talk about your concerns around really serious environmental issues but actually focusing on what will actually solve them, rather than sort of moral or ideological solutions.
0: huh. I mean, that actually brings up an interesting point, because I mean, I think Michael Schellenberger has been doing some writing recently, and I know he's he's no longer with the Breakthrough Institute, but about nuclear and how that it, it shouldn't necessarily be all hands on deck from a technology standpoint, and that in in many ways, renewables are misguided, and maybe shouldn't be part of the Equation, when I hear eco modernism, I think about pragmatist. And to me, pragmatist is all hands on deck. So I feel like those two statements are a little at odds and it's confusing to me, honestly. So, how do you think about that?
1: Well, I think, I mean, pragmatism is a huge component of eco modernism and it's very important to break through. And I think you can have a technocrat that runs the numbers and says, well, actually, it's cheaper or faster if we just do 100% nuclear and wind and solar have all these problems. But Coming from a pragmatism angle, I mean, one thing you have to consider is that there's just a lot of people that like renewables, and they are really cheap to put up, and they contribute a lot to clean energy generation. And so I don't think it's at any way, even if your model says it would be cheap, I don't think there's any way that you could get to a system that's fully decarbonized without renewables. And I don't think you'd want to, because I think you want to have, it's not just we need all the technologies, it's that we need all the different groups that care about climate change, care about air pollution, and they have different things that they like. And I think getting those advocates from different technologies to think of themselves as all working on the same problem, I think that's where you really need all hands on deck. And I do get this sometimes when I do energy networking events in the Bay Area, is there's a lot more kind of communitarian feel from people working in solar companies, in battery companies, in sort of grid management, where it's not that traditional kind of older environmentalism that's like renewables versus nuclear. In the younger generation of people working in energy, when I say I focus on nuclear, they're like, oh, that's really cool. I focus on solar. We're going to need both. And I'm really optimistic. And that makes me feel really good when I hear that, because it is going to take a lot of different stakeholders and people with a lot of different interests to actually make serious progress on stopping climate change. So, yeah, I think Breakthrough, our framework is a lot more pragmatic. And sometimes we definitely encounter a lot of particularly pro-nuclear advocates that are not so pragmatic, that are very, we sometimes call hard eco-modernists, that are, it's nuclear or nothing. And we're much more focused on how to actually make progress. It's going to take all the technologies and even natural gas. And so that's where we come down.
0: I don't know, like, I feel like every term is loaded with history and all this yeah. stuff that I don't understand, but I'm still learning. But I, I definitely find the the pragmatic perspective is the one that resonates with me, where you can't just look theoretically at what the math says, you also have to look at just realistically, what can we get done given lots of other factors that have nothing to do with the math and, and we need to get moving. And we can't just debate and hold out for perfect. Perfect is the enemy of good enough.
1: Yeah, just one example, in terms of costs and time scales, rooftop solar is really inefficient compared to utility-scale solar. And so if you were a dictator trying to decarbonize, you'd say, no more rooftop solar, just build only large-scale utility solar. But in reality, like people really like putting solar panels on their roofs, and it does generate electricity. And so that's a good thing. Let them do it. And we should also put incentives in place to build large-scale utility solar. But Don't stop the good things because they're not perfect.
0: And one other point I can't let you escape without asking about is that when Brett Kokomass from Titans of Nuclear came on my show, one of the points that he made that kind of blew my mind is he said that if you look at the net new emissions as the numerator and the total amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere as the denominator, that it's such a small little smidge that actually all the carbon already up there is a problem and that the net new matters a lot less. And it's not that it doesn't matter, but it just matters a lot less relative to what's already up there and that most of the focus is going on emissions reduction, which is backwards.
1: Yeah. I mean, definitely we need to be pulling a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. Even if we stopped emitting today, we still have a big problem. And so I don't know if you've heard this bathtub analogy where new carbon emissions are coming out of the faucet of your bathtub, the tub is already pretty full. And the key now is to make the drain bigger at the bottom to kind of sink more emissions every year.
0: I hadn't heard that, but I like that. Very easy to understand.
1: Yeah. So our bathtub is getting over full now and we can turn off the tap, but we also need to make the drain bigger. And so we're definitely have been thinking about how to actually make progress on pulling carbon out through technological and Natural or biological ways. And so, yeah, I agree. That's only one part of the problem. And that's why we need to think bigger and get even more hands on deck from the carbon capture
0: crew. I mean, is it a fair assessment that most of the energy, no pun intended, is being spent on emissions reduction when really that ratio should be flipped?
1: No. I think we need a lot more people, resources, time going towards carbon capture and sequestration. But I do think it is fair to focus on emissions reductions because there are all sorts of other bad things that come with CO2 emissions, like particulates, heavy metals, SOx, nox, all these more traditional air pollutants, not to mention water pollution, the impacts of mining on communities and ecosystems that are also really important. And I feel like those tend to resonate a lot more with people, particularly on the local level. So focusing on making air and water cleaner regionally can be a much bigger motivator for for politicians, for state legislatures. And so I think that's where the pragmatic side of us still wants to focus on emissions.
0: And the other thing that I've heard mixed feedback on is just like what role the United States has. Because I mean, we've got, I think it's what, 16 or 18% of total emissions today. Or did I get that right? I don't know the exact number. But whatever it is, it's going to be a lot. Maybe it's 30% now going down to 16%. But I forget, to be honest, whatever piece it is, it's not a majority today. And it's going to be significantly smaller by 2030 or 2050. So no matter what we do in the US, the real problem is places like China, India, developing countries, growth of the middle class, in you know, those places, etc. And the counter to that is yeah but we're such a trendsetter that if we take a leadership position then others will kind of fall behind us and we're very influential in that fight. So how do you think about that and those trade-offs?
1: Yeah, I think more from an innovation side, just in nuclear, the US was a huge leader. I mean it, it exported nuclear reactors all over the world. It started a lot of countries, domestic programs. That are now exporting to other countries. And so from a technology side, the US has done a ton on clean energy, same with solar panels. And so I think that's more where the role of the US really matters. I mean, it still matters. I mean, 20% of emissions is not nothing. And obviously, if we shrink our emissions, it matters less, but getting sort of new and better clean energy technologies out into the world, whether that's through exporting or through partnering with these emerging economies to develop new technologies that work well for them. We saw how the U.S. had a huge impact with the green revolution in agriculture, where scientists would collaborate across countries and develop crops that met the needs of developing economies. And so I think a similar thing needs to happen with energy technologies, and the U.S. is a great partner in terms of demonstrating new technologies and collaborating on R&D. So I think that's where the leadership and the role of the U.S. still really matters.
0: And so if you had a big pot of money, let's say $100 billion, and you could put it towards anything to maximize its impact towards the climate fight, where would it go? How would you allocate it to have the biggest impact?
1: Well, okay, two things. I think. So obviously, I would say nuclear. And in particular, I would, this is wonky, but this is my answer. I would do a competitive bidding process for a big pot of money to finance first of a kind projects. So kind of like how NASA did with commercial spaceflight. So I'd say we want five nuclear power plants in the US, give us your proposals for advanced reactors, and we'll fund them and we'll they can be over market rate because they're first of a kind. I think that would move a lot of private money as well. And then the other one, and this is just off the top of my head, but I think electrifying transportation is a big one. So more electric rail, more subway systems. I mean, in the US, it's abysmal, but even in developing countries, getting their rail and their urban transport in place and electrified, can make it easier to decarbonize in the future.
0: Well, I like your answer. And one thing that made me think of as well that I picked up on early in the discussion and haven't had a chance to address is you mentioned at the very beginning of the discussion that at the Breakthrough Institute, you look to make energy cheap and finding ways to make energy cheap in a market-based way. What does that mean in terms of your personal thoughts or the Breakthrough Institute's thoughts on a price on carbon?
1: The price on carbon can do a lot, particularly when you have clean technologies available, but it tends to work on the margins. And so if you don't have a clean energy that you can deploy, a carbon price just makes energy more expensive for a lot of people and particularly for low-income people. So we sort of see that as a drawback, but definitely if done right, particularly if you do kind of tax and invest. So if you tax carbon, but then invest it in deploying clean energy, that can sort of keep energy cheap while cleaning it up. And so it definitely has benefits. There's a lot of loopholes, particularly with leakage internationally, where it can actually harm the economy. And so that's sort of where we've been hesitant, but we definitely would support one if the money is used for good things.
0: And so I guess in that regard, do we need one? And if so, what form should it take?
1: I think it should definitely use the money to not just deploy clean energy, but to really stimulate innovation in a way that is bringing costs down. So production tax credits for wind and solar have done a lot for economies of scale in terms of bringing the cost down for wind and solar. I think something similar would be really helpful for nuclear. So if the money was used on technological deployment, on public transit, I think that would be great. And it doesn't have to be that large to raise a lot of money. But I think you'd also want to have protections in there for low-income consumers.
0: So it sounds like some type of revenue neutral tax where the revenue is being redeployed into technology innovation.
1: I wouldn't say... So revenue neutral usually refers to giving just all the money back to the people, which I don't think works very well. But yes, I would say investing the money back into the energy system is a good way to go.
0: Yeah. So I probably used the wrong word. (laughs) I didn't necessarily mean dividend it out to the people. Yeah. I just used the wrong word. Cool. So last question. We have lots of listeners that they might be getting their PhDs in astrophysics. They might be being law firms. They might be teachers. They might be hedge fund managers, like any number of things, but they're increasingly caring about climate change and trying to figure out how to help and not really understanding the problem or where to start. And that's that's not the only demographic that listens to the pod, but that's a big one. So I guess speaking to them for a moment, what advice do you have?
1: I'd say Follow what's happening in your state around climate. I think that's a much more digestible process to follow. And there's so much happening at the state level that you can get involved in really small ways, calling your legislature, telling them to support clean energy standards. And in even smaller scale, just figuring out what your community is doing around investing in energy projects or climate projects, I think is important. But definitely, if you're really passionate, I would say, focus on what government's doing and try to get your representatives to push harder on investing in clean energy and innovation.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to stop, but I learned so much from this discussion and it was fun as well. So Jessica, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. And thanks so much for having me. Hey everyone,
0: Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, You can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.